It's wonderful to sing God's praises at this time of year, at all times of the year, um, and to have these songs that are uh, perhaps familiar, but much deeper as you, as you really dig into all the truth that is present in many of these songs, and it's a delight to sing them in this Advent season. Well, I don't know about you, but I can assume it's not a great place to start, but I would assume as being humans that all of us have some type of expectation from the time we were little to perhaps middle age for some of you, and that's gone now, and perhaps later in life. It's just to be human, we have expectations. We have longings, don't we? Uh, Perhaps some of those longings are still uh, out there for you. They wouldn't be longings, I guess, if they weren't there. Uh, There's these hopes that are deferred. There's times that come with much anticipation, but sometimes those things uh, disappoint. And on the lighter end of things, I don't know if you have ever had a bad night of sleep. Anyone had a bad night of sleep and you've longed for the morning uh, to come or you've longed to be able to go back to sleep. Remember those days when you could just go right back to sleep? Um, I think some of the worst nights out there, even though I love doing it, with the camping experience, but some of the worst nights of sleep come while camping. I don't know about you, but for me, they've, I I really do. I I truly stand before you telling the truth about camping and my love for it. I do, I do. I I, I sense some disbelief in that, but I really enjoy it. But there's been a couple of nights that I was underprepared and I did not check the weather. And you know when you, do not bring adequate sleeping gear when you're camping. Um, I have a couple of those stories, just remembering, just begging for the sun to come up um, because it was just too early to light the fire. You can't light the fire at 2 a.m. I mean, you can, um, but uh, some of those nights. I remember uh, we used to do what we call a man camp right down here actually at Lake Casitas with our college guys. We would go to Lake Casitas and... um, I remember this one time, again, someone not watching the weather or paying attention to life in general. Uh, one of the college students came, and he didn't even really think about bringing any sleeping gear. He just, he just showed up. And it dawned on, he's thinking, oh, I can just sleep in my car. Well, it, it dropped. It was high 30s that night at Lake Casitas. I don't know about you, but high 30s is not the most comfortable. You say, oh, it's not that cold. It actually is really cold for sleeping. It'll... Anything really under 50 will keep you up all night. And this, this kid tried to problem solve in the middle of the night. He didn't tell anybody. He was a little too embarrassed to say that I didn't bring anything. So he, he tried his best just to just kind of go into the fetal position and lay there for a while in the tent. That wasn't working. So he went to his car or his truck, got his surfboard and took it out of the surf bag. And he brought that into the tent, crawled into his surfboard bag and zipped it up, wax and all. And that held for a couple of hours. But you can't really, you know, cuddle in the, in the surfboard bag. And he just was desperate for the morning to come. And I think he lit that fire around 4.30 or 5 that morning. Just a silly example. But, of course, there's, there's longings on a much deeper level, not just to see the night through and see a new dawn. Uh, but there's, there's much deeper desires and expectations and longings in our hearts that often just go on 
and on and on. And uh, the, the goalpost just seems to keep moving further and further out. Or it's a mirage that you feel like, I'm almost there, I'm walking up upon it, but it's, it's deferred again. There's much deeper things, I know, in life and in our hearts. Perhaps you look at the political scene or the, the landscape of the world, or maybe you're, you're seeing a lot of news that isn't so encouraging to you, or perhaps it's the education system or dysfunction in a family. It, it, it could be anything that is not quite working the way we would prefer. We see a lack of justice. We see injustice replace justice. We, we see peace pushed off, and we see a lack of joy. Sometimes that's even in our own very hearts. And it's probably no surprise that's why we, we get so excited about this time of year when we get to see that the light of the world has come and shone into this darkness. And we're going to look at that this morning as we look at a prophet's Christmas. And we're going to get to the book of Isaiah. But before we, before we go there, it's interesting to think of Isaiah's vision. I think many of us are probably familiar with that moment in Isaiah 6 where he is, he, he is given that vision of the throne room of heaven. And amidst all of the chaos, amidst all of the darkness, Isaiah gets the clearest vision possible, and that is that God, no matter what's taking place down here, God is always and forever on his throne. His, the train of his robe fills the temple. The glory is not diminished one bit in the, in the heavenly throne room. And so we're going to turn to Isaiah. If you could begin to turn there to chapter 8, actually. We're going to start in chapter 8. And as you do, I want to remind you of many times in the New Testament, Isaiah's prophecy is quoted. It's quoted in Acts. Uh, it's quoted in the Gospels, of course, as they describe the light of Christ dawning on the earth. I, uh, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah proclaims his praise when he he describes it this way: to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Those who sit in darkness is how Zechariah would pray that. We just sang that verse from it came upon a midnight clear. It says, and ye beneath life's crushing load whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow. Those are the days of even Zechariah's day. They're our day, but let's go all the way back to Isaiah's day and see the context of when that prophecy was given. That clear vision was given in a dark time. That's Isaiah chapter 8. So we turn to chapter 8 and go to verse 11. And that's where we're going to get our context, which is actually a deep darkness. The context of Isaiah is, is, is actually when you look at the surrounding culture that he was in and the surrounding geopolitical scene that the nation of Israel was in in their time, it's quite a bleak picture. Let's start in verse 11 of chapter 8 to get a little bit of a running start into Isaiah chapter 9. It says, 
For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, speaking of his own people, the nation of Israel and Judah, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Continue on down to uh, verse 21. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and with and will speak contemptuously against their king and God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. You can hear the sobriety in the book of Isaiah as he sets the stage, or actually God speaks to him in this vision, and the stage can be seen. First of all, it's, it's darkness on as mentioned before, the geopolitical scene. If you can, imagine a map with me. Maybe it's helpful for you to turn to your maps. We never ask you to turn to your maps. Turn to your maps if you want, if this helps of the ancient Near East. You have just a sliver of land, which is Israel, next to the huge Mediterranean Sea. And below to the south, and really the southwest, is this nation of Egypt, that is actually on the decline. It's struggling to retain its power and influence in the region. And to the northeast, or to the north, really directly north, kind of like today for Israel, you have the nation of Syria, which the capital is Damascus. And you have immediately bordering, of course, Judah is Israel right in between there. So it's Judah, Israel, Syria, then you have coming on the scene further to the northeast, you have Assyria with its capital, Nineveh. And then this little country further to the east that's beginning to dawn, you could say, beginning to exert its power in its own region and will eventually, in a hundred more years, get right to the capital of Judah, Jerusalem. And that is, we, are not, we know that as Babylon, right? In Isaiah's day, Babylon was just a small country beginning to exert its influence and power in that region. And all of these nations, you have to understand that Israel is right on the major highway of the ancient Near East. For all of the kings to go south and dominate in Egypt, or for Egypt to, re to surge back and try to exert its influence in the ancient Near East towards uh, what would be modern-day Iraq and Iran. And you have little tiny Israel on this stage of huge players of Assyria and Babylon and late, later kingdoms would come like Greece. And you have all, these, all the while just little Israel hanging on. And sometimes it might think by its own strength it's able to survive. And its own strength, it's there in the region. But we know that their God is the one keeping them alive on that little map dot we call Israel in that region. And every time the, the kings or the armies would march back and forth on this coastal highway, 
they're not just going, that you have to feed an army, right? They're not just going to their final goal and destination. They're destroying and using and decimating every people in every country for their own cause along the way. So Israel is smashed multiple times, and all but Judah really remains. All but Jerusalem really remains at the end of Isaiah's prophecy. And he, just so you understand the time frame, it's about 750 years before Christ. 750 years before Christ is when Isaiah begins to prophesy. prophesy. Roughly around 700 is when his, his prophecies would end. And he spans four kings in Judah. You can see that in chapter 1, verse 1, beginning with Uzziah's reign. He's prophesying all through this time, and that is the scene, is this jockeying, this competing of massive international players for power and influence and resources in the region. And so you could say this this is a dark hour for Israel. They're losing their national identity. By God's sovereignty, borders are shrinking Parts of their country are being shaved off by this king and this kingdom. And it's just continuing to shrink as they begin to question or continue to question, where is Yahweh in all of this? I thought he was on our side. So it's a dark national and geopolitical scene. You have to understand that Sennacherib came in, I believe, the 730s, maybe a little bit later, the 730s. He's from Assyria. And he started talking trash. Do you remember this? He started talking trash against the people of Israel. He sent his envoys from a town called Lachish up to Israel and says, you better just give up because we're on our way. And you have to understand, just, just so you feel it a little bit more, Lachish would be about the same distance as Santa Barbara to Solvang. So if Jerusalem was Solvang and this, was already, this town was destroyed, he's sending a messenger what would take you less than an hour to get there in car today, that's, you're coming, we're, we're coming for you next. And that's Hezekiah's day, that's Isaiah's day. And the pressure is mounting around the people of Israel and they're always scratching their heads and saying in their hearts, what? Who will I trust during this time? Will I trust Yahweh? Is Yahweh good? Does Yahweh have a plan for his people? Or are we just going to become the next failed kingdom? But it's not just national darkness that's beginning to descend upon Israel. It's relational darkness. And we can see this all over the book of Isaiah. We're only going to pick a couple of scriptures so you see how relationally corrupt the nation itself was. It's not just out there. It's not just, oh, all those bad kingdoms and those, these, these poor Hebrews in in the middle, this this poor little nation of Israel that has never done anything wrong. We know that's not the story, right? We know that's not the story. That relationally they were corrupt even with one another. You can see it all throughout the book of Isaiah that there was, even within the holy city itself, there's crime, there's oppression of orphans and widows. There's deceitful decrees, it says, that are being passed. Um, there's, there's all kinds of mistreatment and prolonged rebellion in this, in this city of Jerusalem, also in this nation of Judah. But here's what I want us to look at. As we set up chapter 9 even more, go over to chapter 1, will you? Just so you understand 
who Isaiah is writing to, we need to understand who Isaiah is writing to to understand how deep this darkness goes. It's, it's not just national. It's not just a few broken relationships. It goes to the deepest, darkest part of really existence, and that is the human soul. Look at 1-4, how he, he, as in the Lord, is addressing his own people. 1-4, Isaiah 1-4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. We could continue on. All of chapter one really sets up, look, I know you're committed to sacrifices. You keep bringing me the sacrifices, but they're a joke to me. They're a joke because your heart's not in it. You're, it's perfunctory to you. It's, it's something that you're just kind of checking the box, but your heart is far from me. Go over to verse 16. He begins to call them to repentance in verse 16. 116 of Isaiah, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Here's a famous verse in 118, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. And the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Go over to chapter 2, verse 8, where we can see God calling out their sin of idolatry. Verse 8 of chapter 2, their land is filled with idols they bow down. We're not talking about the Canaanites. We're not talking about other countries. He's talking about his own people. They bow down to the work of their own hands, to what their fingers have made. Look at chapter 3. Skip over to chapter 3, verse 8. And you can see their defiance and their, their rebellion against God. 3.8 says, For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. And he compares them to Sodom in verse 9. Five, chapter 5, go over to chapter 5. It talks about the Lord planted a vineyard and he got nothing out of his vineyard. Instead of good grapes, he has wild grapes. It's, a, it's an upside-down vineyard. For, that's not why a farmer would plant anything, right? Is to have the complete opposite produce, be produced by what you sought to produce. He wanted a vineyard that would produce sweet wine and good grapes, and he gets a briar patch is, is basically what God is saying. Look at verse 7, 5-7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Skip down to verse 20 of chapter 5. And he begins to deliver these many woes. Verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light 
and light for darkness. You'll begin to see this theme all through Isaiah. He uses the word light many, many times. You're exchanging light for darkness, bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. And then verse 24, therefore as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be, rot, will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. You get the idea. It goes, it goes on and on. God's indictment, God's judgment on his people for walking away from him. And as he calls them back, you would like to think they immediately respond and repent and return in righteousness to him, but that's not the story of Isaiah. And we have to ask the question, why is that darkness? Why is the darkness there? We read about the darkness, them exchanging darkness for light. And why is the darkness always there? Why is, why is darkness so prevalent? It's not just the national scene is a disaster. It's not just it's a few surface things one, one to another. It's, it goes far deeper than that, doesn't it? It goes into the human heart itself. And that, in a sense, is a, is a black hole of misplaced morality. And really what this darkness is, it's, a, it's this shroud of sin that has come down upon really the entire earth and cloaked it in darkness. From the time of the fall through Isaiah's time, through the time of the promise actually coming in Christ. And even into this day, there's this darkness of sin that covers. Not just covers the earth in a, in a general, generalized sense, but it can cloud the heart. It's, it's in the heart. And this, is, <clears throat> this, this darkness represents the distance between a holy God and a sinful people that would seek to displace him. It's an immeasurable gap that cannot be, that really cannot be rectified. It cannot, it cannot be overcome. This blindness, while we may tell ourselves we see, we fail to see. It's also, it, this blindness is an ignorance of our deepest need. It's not just we're, we're blind, it's that we're blind and we think we see. Even, even through the sin. And this darkness, you could also describe it as a, a slavery to sin, deceit, fear, floundering, hate, despair, hopelessness, gloom, and even unbelief all mixed into one. It's not a pretty picture. It's really just a picture of a world or an existence without God. And I think we're meant to feel that. And I want to let us just hang out there for a little bit to feel that darkness. Not to necessarily embrace it, but to, to know it, to know it's there, and to know the hopelessness of the darkness without the light coming into the world. I think Ephesians 4 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 19 says this. Look at how it describes how the Gentiles walk, and this is how Paul would say it. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's how it, the heart is described. The Gentiles walk in this. It's, it's a darkened, not just darkened out there, but in, the own, in our own minds, darkened in understanding. And only th- this would become more easy to see as we move towards the time of Christ. From Genesis to Isaiah proved that full well, that not even a nation with God's law could keep that right. And from Isaiah to Christ still proved yet further how deep that darkness went. Even to the time of Christ when you have this system that says we, we ascribe to God They espouse God's word, yet they somehow turn that into a system that made themselves look better, and it really just exchanged idolatry externally for idolatry internally, where it was just idols worshiped in the heart. I don't know if you've ever felt physically the deepest darkness ever that you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. We actually don't experience that darkness that that kind of darkness all that often. It's not that enjoyable, right? Even in a dark room that we sleep in, we, we would like to be able to see if we need to get up, right? Uh, we have little things called night lights that, that are helpful around the house. Uh, even as you go outside on, on a moonless night, starlight actually provides quite a bit of light. And of course, living in the city, you have lights all over the place that you're never in the deepest of darkness. Have you guys ever done spelunking? Any, anybody, any spelunkers out there? I got one over here. Do we know what spelunking is? It's a strange term for climbing into a cave, okay? I don't know why we call it that. But if you've ever gone so deep down into a cave uh, that the guide or whoever you're with, you all agree to turn your flashlights off. You ever done that? I remember going to the Lava Beds National Monument. It's in the furthest part of California you could ever go in, the northeast of the border of Oregon's the Lava Beds National Monument. And they have these lava tubes that some of them go on for a couple of miles and all created by volcanic activity. And you can explore these caves. And that was a, that was a science trip that we went on with my school. And you got down in there and everybody's got the flashlights, everybody's feeling comfortable and you know, you, you're, you're, you're having fun as you go in, but then all of a sudden you're saying, hey, let's agree to turn off the lights. And it's, it's fun for just a little bit, right? You're like, hey, you can't, see your, you can't see your hand. But it's no longer fun if all the flashlights go dead, right? They run out of batteries and nobody brings any snacks and the, the cave entrance collapses. You get the picture, right? It's only fun while we're kind of exploring caves for fun or for just adventure. But we're, we're in that spot where we have no food and we have no light and we don't even know which way the entrance is. And we could, 
We could think we're crawling towards the entrance and still be going back in the cave one more mile. I think that's a, a picture of the darkness that we face is sometimes we think that we're like, we think we got it because, you know, things, there's still physical light and life still happens and things still grow and you can still look forward to things, yet that darkness is always, always, always there without the light of Christ. Well, I want us to think about that because it'll help us appreciate, of course, where we're going in Isaiah chapter 9. I want to, as we turn back to Isaiah chapter 9, let me read this verse 1 from O Holy Night. The stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. So what's the response? Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. Oh, night divine. Oh, night when Christ was born. Oh, night. Oh, holy night. O night divine. I think it's even interesting and no accident that God is in perfect timing of pregnancies, right? And deliveries. And that he caused Mary to deliver the child at that time of day, or you could say night. And the shepherds, we, we know this from the shepherds getting that, that announcement right there because it says they, it filled the night sky. And it's marked, this, this uniqueness of Christ's coming is, is marked by a strange star. And the glory of, which was perhaps glory from heaven or light from heaven shining in the field as the angels' presence sing and they declare to the shepherds, hey, go see who's been born. And on, a, on, the, on perhaps the darkest night that Israel ever experienced, this is what the prophetic message was, is that there is a great light. There is a great light who is coming. And remember, we're back in Isaiah's day, so go to chapter 9, and we're, we're set, we set the context as a deep darkness, but this great light is coming, and we have to understand where this, this prophecy really lies. What, what was the, the context in which this great light has come? Verse 9, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 1, but there will be no gloom for, who, who, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, that's the northern part of Israel. That's, that's where these armies would have gone back and forth. And if you're going to take anything, they're going first. That's, the, Judah is in a much safer area. Jerusalem especially is a much more guarded territory. But Zebulun and Naphtali overexposed when it comes to war. It says, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, that is that highway that goes to the sea, the land beyond the Jordan. Now that we're talking about the east of Jordan, Galilee of the nations. It's interesting that Jesus Christ, when he came, these two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, Zebulun would have contained Nazareth and Naphtali contains Bethsaida 
and Capernaum. Are those familiar names to you, familiar cities? Because that's where Christ spent, I don't even know the percentages, but higher than 90% of his life. He grew up there. He was all but born there and a few trips to Jerusalem each year. Christ spent his entire life in these downtrodden tribes that felt the darkness perhaps deeper than any other tribe that was in Israel. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light is shone. That's Zechariah picking that up in his prayer of praise. Chapter 9, verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, this is not going to happen anymore to God's people. Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In other words, it's just going to keep going and going and extending and extending. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with justice, and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Can you feel that? Can you feel that moment where these tribes in the northern part of Israel are just crushed over and over. You have a system of self-righteousness being set up in the capital of Jerusalem. And Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 9, given roughly 700 years before Christ would ever come, that hope is delivered to this nation that could still hope, and very few like Simeon and Anna and Zechariah and Elizabeth themselves looking for the light who would be the light for the nations. You see, I think this great light appeared in Israel's darkest hour, and perhaps you could say the world's darkest hour. Jesus, of course, is that great light who's able to penetrate such a deep darkness. When you think about like even the most modern uh, headlights, you know those new headlights? I know you know those new headlights. And you're like, do they really need to be that bright? And uh, I mean, are we really encountering a lot of deer in, in the cities that, that these lights are used in? Or maybe it's, I don't know, but you just don't want to hit objects in front of a car generally. It's amazing that even the best of lights can't really shine all that far into a darkness. But if you're on the other side of that light, you can see even the smallest of lights from hundreds of yards, miles, even hundreds of miles away. And if you want to take it outside of this earth, you can, you can try to do the math 
of how far away we are at seeing the sun every day and the stars that are, that are in the galaxies, that we can perceive that light, but yet our own lights, our own man-made lights struggle to penetrate darkness. And you think about how great the darkness is, well, we obviously need a great light to pierce that darkness, far more than external sunlight or even, I don't know what to call it, but just UV ray that penetrates or ultraviolet or infrared that penetrates deeper than surface level. We need the light of Christ to penetrate the darkest part of the world. And it's not out there, people. It's in here. That's where we need Christ to penetrate the light of himself and the light of his word the most deeply, mostly, most deeply. And you think about Jesus, for the most part, hid this from, from the earth. After his birth, there's not a lot of re- revelation of this light, except for maybe Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, where they what I believe is they got a sneak peek, a burst of his glory and what that was going to look like and that they must listen to him. You know, God has always been associated with light. Jesus being that light that came, as we read about in John chapter one this morning, and will continue to be the light of the world. And as Acts thirteen forty seven says, even Paul says that we are now the light of the world as we proclaim Christ. And who is going to be the light in heaven someday? We're not going to need a sun. Why? Because the lamb becomes the light that gives light to all. And there is no need of a sun when you have a king or a lamb burning that brightly. It's, it's strange to even comprehend. So I think what we have to consider is the response. The response. Light doesn't always do the same thing to every, everything it touches. I don't know if you recall John 3. It's, it's a tough passage. John chapter 3. After he speaks of the light coming, of course, John is very interested in how the world responds to the light. But it says in John 3.19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's John's perspective on how the world responded to the light. And we have that same call on us today because the light shines on a a dark heart. And even you who are saved this morning, as God's word pierces more deeply on your heart, thank God for the grace of the light shining in those areas that you have not yet seen and those areas that have not yet been exposed. Because the light shines on me, I don't now need to cover up that light. I need to say, who is the source of this light? And thank you for the light. But here's the prophetic purpose, and that is this, 
It's the salvation for the world. The salvation for the world. I want to turn back to Isaiah, and I'll just read you verse, verses 5 and 6 of 49. He says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to his servant, to be a servant, to bring back Jacob to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. And here's the reason. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That is the purpose of the light coming. It's not just to save Israel is what Isaiah is saying here. It's not just to save Judah. It's not just to save his own people. It's so that light can keep going and save an entire world. It's salvation for the world. <clears throat> I want to give, give you a, a quick overview as we scan some verses. I'll read this from the book of Acts. What is it that con converts from darkness to light? Acts 26, Paul would say it this way, delivering you from your people, speaking of the Israelites, and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified and, and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what God is saying to his servant, Paul, who has just become Paul after he's going through this moment of actual blindness when God knocks him off his horse on the way to Damascus. He experiences blindness and then those scales fall off his eyes because God is taking him from darkness to light. Look further at 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says, You are a chosen race, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who, what? Called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We aren't, we, this, we're just hitting a fraction of verses in the Old and New Testament that speak of God removing one from darkness and placing them over to the kingdom of light. Go to Colossians 1.13. Paul would say it this way, the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4 to 5, it says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for you are all children of light, children of the day. God's people have now been converted from darkness to light. Ephesians 5.8 talks about at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So what? Now walk as children of light. Walk as you are. This is who you are. Now walk in that way. But one of my favorites, probably the favorite of all of this is in 2 Corinthians 4, 5 and through 7. But 4.6 says this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. So in the beginning, those are the first words of God, let there be light. He says this, is also shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. I think that's a just one of the most beautiful pictures and summations of what takes place when God speaks and shines into our darkness. That light now enters our heart, and now we, in an, some amazing, astonishing way, begin to partner with Christ, who is the light of the nations. Very similar to the other analogy that John uses, that, that as we drink the water of Christ, it says, I will produce in you fountains of living water. Only God can create that miracle. And I think that's where we're left this morning as a response to saying, what, what does the light, in a sense, you could say, what does the light do for you? Maybe that's, I hope that doesn't cheapen it. As the saying goes, maybe this has more to do with heat than light, but the sun, what, that hardens the clay can also melt the wax. So it's the light of God's word as it penetrates the human soul it's meant to do its work of response, and that is to call a world that sits in darkness to respond to the light of life, which is Christ. I want to read Isaiah 55 as a conclusion. Maybe just listen. Isaiah 55, a couple of verses from here, you're going to recognize them. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and, for your, and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. That's the gospel according to Isaiah. You don't have it in and of yourselves. So come and come to the one, come to the source of who gives this righteousness. And then six and seven of Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for we, he will abundantly pardon I hope you know that that's true not only in Isaiah's day, not only in the time of the fulfillment of Christ, but you've experienced that this morning. That satisfaction, that longing, that deferment. And I like to say that God-sized hole in your heart that can never be filled with anything but who? God himself. God's calling you to himself through the light of life, through Jesus Christ, his son, and he does that through his word as it extends from nation to nation and people to people and family to family and individual to individual as that glory wraps around the entire globe. God is brought, is, is given, and more glory is brought to him because of the result of the light encircling the earth. Let's pray and thank him for that this morning. Our God of gods who, as Paul says, dwells in unapproachable light. Lord, you 
in your mercy have reached down even in Isaiah's day to speak of a promise to come, to speak of a Messiah who would save and not just save a nation, not just revive an economy, not just give them an identity, but that would save us from our sins. And we know in his 53rd chapter how you would do that, how you would bear our iniquity. And Father, we, we bow again even this morning in the current day and we still feel that darkness. We still want you to return. We, we long for that. And Lord, as we wait, I pray that our hearts would be filled not with the distractions of this world, but with the peace that only you can bring and deliver because you are a mighty and you are a merciful God we serve. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your word to your people in ancient times, and we thank you for the liveliness that it is today. It's still alive and speaking to us. Uh, We praise you for that. Pray that our response is one of humility and rejoicing at this time of year. We pray these things. In your son's name, amen.